Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on jewishcoffeehouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Welcome back to the Francisca Show. Today we will be completing or continuing our series, Pro and Cons to Making Aliyah. If you have not listened to part one and part two, please go into the show notes. Both episodes are linked in there. Check them out. We will be referring to them and addressing some of the things that have come up in the first two episodes. I do want to warn you that I get pretty riled up here and I go off a little bit in this episode. So to counter that emotional response, I am bringing on a Palestinian onto the show where we could talk more about these issues. So I can stick to the moderate platform that I like to keep on the show by bringing all the voices and information to you. Next, I'd like to talk about this new app and device that's out there. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called 24-6. It brings Spotify, Apple Music, Apple Podcasts all into one place. So if up until now, you could either listen to Jewish content or non-Jewish content. And of course, the women always fell into the non-Jewish content because they were never kosher enough to be on the filtered platforms and devices. So now 24-6 is prioritizing Jewish content for all Jews, which finally includes us to the women. I'm so excited to be endorsing a product that's really catering to our communities, but this time also listening to the women and listening to the communities who are begging to have women and girls be seen and heard. And their motto is, have your values and to. And for all the people who don't have smartphones or smart devices, you can get the 24-6 Family Player. That's a dedicated device for listening to 24-6. There's no way to add any other apps onto it. So it's really respecting all the different hashkafos and values that us Jews have. I have linked them in the show notes. You will be helping me by clicking on that link specifically given in the show notes here. Finally, if you have not watched my music video or listened to my latest release, I have linked it again this week, Kolisha. And keep reaching out with your incredible feedback. The response has been amazing. If you like this podcast, make sure you are following it wherever you're getting this podcast and you can rate and review it. Please share it with your friends and family. I appreciate you so, so much. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Francisco Show. Today with us, we have Ken Toltz and we are here to continue the Aliyah series. Ken, welcome to the show. Francisca, it's really my pleasure to be with you. I'm so honored to be here. And as you know, I'm inspired by your work and everything that you do with your life. And I just really feel honored that you would want to talk to me about my Aliyah experience and am hopeful that my experience will be helpful 
to your audience and maybe inspire them to check it out and maybe even come here because we, we need a few more good people. I love that. So let's start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself, your religious and professional background. Great. So I am a third generation Coloradan from a Jewish family of great grandparents who moved from Eastern Europe to Colorado, which was always kind of shocking to us. How did they get all the way to Colorado and why? Uh, but those of us who grew up in Colorado were very happy that they did pick that place. It's a wonderful place to grow up. On both sides of my family, they were in business and they were also committed to helping the Jewish community grow and thrive and supported and helped found some of the major institutions in the city of Denver. That was the role model that I grew up as far as Jewish communal responsibility. There were also synagogue goers. My mom's side of the family was reformed. My dad's side of the family was, I think what today would be called modern Orthodox. I think back in the day, they just called it conservative or traditional or observant. So I grew up being exposed to both, which through Hebrew school and was bar mitzvah and also confirmed by my synagogue religious school, Jewish youth group. But then my Jewish involvement really stopped for several years until I did my junior year abroad at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. That was a life-changing experience, which I never knew when I started out that it was going to be a life-changing experience. But living in Israel and studying the things that I was most interested with, which was the politics and the history, and being in the most amazing city you can possibly live in in the world, Jerusalem, was very, very special. And, and, and plus, I met the woman who would become my wife on that program as well. And we were married for 22 years and have two daughters who also had a Jewish upbringing. We're unfortunately divorced, but we're divorced in a friendly, very friendly way and still love each other and still care about each other and still keep in close touch and are co-parents of our two daughters. So that's a little bit about me, but I know you have some questions and we can talk about further my experience with Israel or about my experience with Aliyah as a single person later in life. Yeah. So let's go into that. I know you have a unique perspective. First of all, you are our first male guest to talk about Aliyah. So I'm sure the men will be very happy to be represented, even if their story is not similar to yours at all. So tell us when and how it happened. How long did it take also? Yeah, so actually I wrote several articles about my Aliyah experience in the Times of Israel. So anybody who wants to read, you know, more thorough descriptions should check me out on the Times of Israel website. I didn't intend to make Aliyah. It was a very interesting situation. I had spent a lot of time over the last 40 some years visiting Israel but never essentially said, oh, I want to live there someday. But I always kept very engaged and involved. And so there was a part of me that was probably fascinated with the idea, and maybe I didn't really know it as that well. But I had a, a difficult time in my family about five years ago when both of my parents were aged and had health problems at the same time. Very difficult for my family, the caregiving process, very challenging to our family relationships. And both my parents sadly passed away within 18 months of each other. And uh, on top of losing my parents and losing really the core of my family, I felt like I needed to get away from, from Denver. And it was my opportunity to go live in Israel. That's what I thought. I think I'll just go live in Israel. And by karma, I met somebody who owned an apartment that re they rented out in a small town in the Negev called Mitzpah Ramon. So I signed a lease for one year and I got on a plane. I was living in Boulder, Colorado, landed in Tel Aviv and went right to Mitzpah Ramon and started a year adventure of living in Israel as a 
basically American who had not made Aliyah. I moved in the summer of 2019. Really, the objective was to find a place to process the grieving of losing my parents and my core family, which had blown apart over the caretaking process. And I chose Israel and I chose Mitzpah Ramon because in the year 2016, I participated in a charitable bicycle ride called the Israel Ride, which raises money for a environmental college down in the Negev. And the bicycle ride goes from Jerusalem to a lot over six days. And it was, again, one of those life-changing experiences, which I highly recommend if you're into cycling, to, because to see Israel on a bicycle is like nothing else. Um, and I literally, you know, very slowly <laughs> made my way. So we stay in this little town called Mitzpah Ramon for Shabbat, which is the longest time that you spend in any one place during the ride. So you pull it on Friday afternoon, and then you have uh, a beautiful Kabbalat Shabbat Friday night. And then all day Saturday in this town at the edge of what's called the Maktesh Ramon, which is a huge crater. It uh, looks a lot like the Grand Canyon. And it's just as peaceful, as quiet, and as beautiful as any place you'll ever find. And I thought, you know, that might be a really good place for me to process um, losing, you know, my folks and starting this new life without parents. So as I arrived in Mitzpah Ramon, Israelis, who are very curious by nature and want to ask you every personal question under the sun within 30 seconds of meeting you, all wanted to know my story and all assumed that I was an Ole Hadash, that I had just arrived on, on Aliyah. And the more I would be telling this story that I just told you over and over and over again, and by the way, the tears would just flow, which was really a good uh, and healthy part of it. The more I told the story and the more I understood my parents' connection to Israel and that I was actually following in their intentional dream of giving back to the Jewish people by supporting Israel, um, that I felt very connected to them in the Negev. So that was really beautiful. But I also was keep, kept telling the story and thinking, well, maybe I made Aliyah and I just don't know it. Maybe that's what I did and I just didn't go through the process. So I started looking into the process, living in Israel. And I found that it's so complicated and complex with bureaucracy and all the documentation you need to have. It's much, much easier to do that when you're back in America. So tip number one, don't try to make Aliyah while living in Israel. Get it done while you're in America and get your permission before you arrive for your official Aliyah. That doesn't mean you can't spend time in Israel, but just realize that trying to get navigate through the bureaucracy is much easier when you're home, access to the documents, everything that you need. Which, by the way, I had to do during COVID because it was the year of 2020. And it took extra long because, as you remember, all the government offices were closed and anything took twice or 10 times longer than it would take today. So it took nine months to go through that entire process, which I would not have been able to navigate without Nefesh Benefesh, which came up in one of your previous podcasts, maybe both, maybe both of the previous podcasts, your guests experience with Nefesh Benefesh. And I, I tell people that without their support, both their emotional and uh, support, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis of what to do, and how to navigate the waters, I don't think I would have been able to get it done. It was just too complicated. And you need somebody who really is there for you. And they assign kind of like a case officer for each person who works with the Jewish agency 
that works with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, which actually gives you permission to make Aliyah, gives you the initial passport that you're an Ola Hadash. So I'm a huge believer in, and supporter of Nefesh B'Nefesh and really encourage anybody who even potentially exploring the idea to go to their website. It's nbn.org.il. And once you start, you will see all the amazing resources they put together. And they're continuing to do that even today. After I made Aliyah, they can keep in touch with me and provide webinars all the time for topics that we need help with. And they're here in Israel and they have staff for you in Israel and they have a facility in Jerusalem and they have a co-working space in Tel Aviv. So they really are dedicated to helping North Americans make Aliyah. Some of the things that came up for you during the last two episodes and that made you reach out and say, look, I got to speak up. Yeah, occasionally I get bugged to say, wait a minute, there's more to this story than this person is saying. Or in the case of, I'm not sure if it was one or both of the guests, I felt they painted with very, very broad brushes. And the beautiful thing about Israel is there is a huge number of communities here and a huge number of nationalities and people from all over the world who've settled here. So there is many, many communities. There's not one Israel. And that's what keeps it interesting and it keeps it stimulating is that you can literally go across the street and find another whole culture living in your in your part of the world. I don't paint Israel with this broad brush. Uh, everyone's like this or everyone believes that or everyone does this because that's simply not the case. I When I came here, I came here with no one, no relatives, no uh, just a couple of friends who had moved here over the years, so I had no support system whatsoever. And I had to start from, from zero, which is not easy when you're an established adult. And especially for myself, who I was part of a longtime family community, of several generations who were established in that community, and to walk away from that and start over and just be, who's this guy, Ken Toltz, just happened to show up in Mitzpah Ramon. And to nobody, you know, just somebody who they, they basically think you must be nuts to leave America for Israel. A lot of Israelis want to know why did you make Aliyah and what's that all about? So it's kind of funny to deal with that. Through having all those conversations, it really helped me to explore my own motivations and what I was hoping to get out of this experience to really remain open to new experiences and new exposures. And that was another Part of, you know, the previous, your previous guest's conversation was I felt they lived in a bubble in both cases. And you can live in a bubble. You can live in a bubble in Boulder, Colorado, where I moved from. It's very easy. But if you're moving to Israel, there is a thousand bubbles. And if you stay into your one little bubble, you are missing out on amazing, amazing experiences here. Give examples. What do you mean by they were in bubbles? They are in bubbles. And call them out by names. I asked you to prepare. Oh, them, no, I'm not calling them out by names. There's only two of them. And any, any listeners can go back and listen to segment number one and segment number two. And I think one, if not both of them, had ties to Denver, which was really interesting for me just to say that's karma. But I, I recall that one of your guests talked about her interactions with Arabs. And, you know, there are literally millions of Arab Israeli citizens who live in Israel. And there are millions more who live what's called outside the Green Line or in the West Bank or in Judea and Samaria, whatever your favorite word is for that part of the world. 
And you can interact with these people or you can choose not to interact. But if you go to a hospital or you're in an ambulance or in a pharmacy, you are going to be interacting with Arab Israelis. I choose to interact with Arab Israelis. The latest thing that I did, Francesca, is I went to Oktoberfest in a small Palestinian Christian town called Taibay. And there is a craft brewery in Taibay. It's the oldest craft brewery in Israel. <laughs> They're not there. You know, the rest of them are all Israeli. They can only be a craft brewery because they're in a Christian community. As you know, Muslims don't uh, drink alcohol. So very interesting for them to be doing this business. And I met the owners and the brewmasters and the whole family, and they couldn't have been nicer people. First of all, they couldn't have been more hospitable. They couldn't have been more interesting. And and they were successful, but they want to export their products across the street, essentially, to Israel. And that's complicated for them. That's something that I think Israelis who live in a bubble will never even understand what it's like to start a business in the West Bank and want to sell your products in Israel and what they have to go through in order to do that. So that's just one, one experience from a business standpoint and personal standpoint. You mentioned before, you know, everyone's in a bubble and it makes sense because in Israel, there are so many different types of people and they are all, or many of them are very extreme and they all stay close knit with each other. Obviously, there are millions of exceptions to the rule. Let's just go through some more of your feedback. That well, you what, what I would say, um, Francisca, is just because they're different doesn't mean they're threatening. And one of your guests specifically made a statement about never trust an Arab, which I found so offensive that I couldn't believe she would say something like that in a podcast. And, and then I sent her a message and she reconfirmed that she really does believe that. She says it out loud. You know, it's not just that it's politically correct. It's it's really a an attitude that as a parent you would never want to pass along to a child as far as I'm concerned. But at any rate, what I was thinking about was uh, another story I had, an experience that I had when I was... Living in, in Mitzpah Ramon, I used to occasionally go to the beach, which is far, far away. So I would get on Airbnb and just find a place that had near the proximity to the beach and go to that town. I would take the bus and show up in that town and then try to make my way to the Airbnb. I had one of these only in Israel experiences where the bus driver said he was going to drop me off at the right stop and then didn't. So I went way out of my way and had to get off the bus and figure out how do I get back to where I'm supposed to go. And a taxi driver saw me and just pulled over and said, do you need some help? Do you know where you're going? How he even knew that I was in that state is beyond me, but I was, and I was really frustrated. I got in his uh, cab and I told him where I was trying to get to and what had just happened to me. We bonded over that initial experience that he was a very friendly, open, nice guy. We got to be friends. Uh, in Rosh Hashanah, he invited me to his house to partake in the Rosh Hashanah lunch meal. That's that's kind of the end of the story. How does that connect with the don't trust an Arab ever? I thought you were well, going somewhere else with the don't story. Trust an Arab ever. <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't want to miss telling the, that story. I'll tell you the don't trust an Arab story ever. How do I know that? So um, I shop in the old city in the Arab market, the Arab Shook. If you've ever had that experience, you know that they try to entice you into their shops by speaking the language that they think you're, you're from. And uh, one friendly guy spoke English to me and I ended up in his shop. And as soon as I got in, he was calling his friend to go get me coffee and tea. And we discussed, you know, that I really wasn't shopping, but 
I wanted to talk to him about what he was doing. He was a young man and uh, we had a conversation and he realized again that I was in Israel without friends or family. And he said, I would really like to invite you to dinner at my house. I said, okay, next time I'm in Jerusalem, I'll let you know and I will come to dinner at your house. So next time I came to Jerusalem, I let him know ahead of time. And he said where to meet him. He lives in Ramallah, which is outside the Green Line. It's in the occupied territories, if you will. Um, but it's literally 15 minutes from Jerusalem. It's basically like a suburb of Jerusalem. In order to get to Ramallah, you have to go through a military checkpoint. I drove into Ramallah with my car. I had rented a car and he met me at the checkpoint and he guided me through, he was on a motorcycle to his house. But before we got to his house, he had to stop to pick up some of the meal that he had ordered just for me. And it was platters of meat. We went to his house. It's a young couple. They're in their late twenties and they have three children who are asleep, unfortunately. And they invited me in and they had already had a table of food just for me. So we, we ate and got to know each other. And then the doorbell rang and it was his cousin who had heard I was visiting and came to visit and wanted to meet me. Then the doorbell rang and it was his mother who brought in a huge pot of soup, which she described as a Palestinian soup. And because she heard I was there and she wanted me to try her, I had to have her Palestinian soup. Then the doorbell rang and it was their father. For the same reason, he heard I was visiting and he wanted to come over and meet me. He's dressed in a suit and tie. He himself has been a vendor in the old city for over 50 years and he wanted to meet me. And they wanted to hear my story. And they were like, Here, you live in Israel and you wanted to come meet us? You know, it was so, they felt it was so unusually rare. And I felt like, you know what, I'm representing here. I'm representing a different face of Israel that you maybe haven't seen before. And all you see is soldiers in the old city or people rushing by you on their way to the Kotel who won't give you the time of day or just huge numbers of tourists. I'm, I'm a little bit different than that, those people. And I'd like you to get to know me and I'd like to get to know you on a human level. And, you know, just be friends with these amazing people who live right next door to us, completely different culture, and are just living their lives just the way you and I do. They right. don't have a political agenda. They're not interested in joining in terrorism. They're just interested in having uh, a life, making a living for it so they can raise their kids. So let me just stop you right there. Number one, right now I'm looking at you. Are you wearing a kippah? Are you? No. No, you are not. So for the record, for everyone listening, you are not wearing a, a yarmulke, which makes you unidentifiably Jewish, non I'm meaning not a... you don't look like a woman in her shetel <laughs> or a man with payas visibly, right. visibly religious, which is a turnoff for most Palestinians. So that's number one. Number two. I wonder why. Why is that a turnoff for most Palestinians? Well, I don't think they would be invited for dinner. Yeah, but are you, are you implying they have something against religious Jews just on the basis of their the way they look? Well, also a religious Jew wouldn't accept a dinner invite unless the food's being catered by a kosher establishment, right? Let's have a frank conversation. You asked yeah. me for it, yeah. you're getting it, Yeah. right? I think you just... If I was invited somewhere for dinner and let's say I wanted to accept that, your responsibility of representing Orthodox Jews or Jews in general or whatever it is, Based on my observance, I would have to ask for a kosher meal or not eat at their home. So that wouldn't violate my lifestyle and my observance level. I think you were less threatening 
to that family, which it makes sense. The way the Jewish laws are created are to separate us from anyone who is not Jewish, which includes dining together, spending dinners together. It's complicated when when Jews need to dine with non-Jews. They either need things, you know, catered or whatever it is that's going on in the kitchen. It's it's visibly and and practically difficult. There there are obstacles and they're there on purpose. And and the Palestinians for sure feel it. And when you said we're not politically, we're just all living. Well, yeah, if you're an Israeli and you have a son or even a daughter, they're expected to serve in the IDF. That that's politically aligned. Ask any, any parent of a soldier. Let's say they made Aliyah and they're too old to serve, their children who are born there or who make Aliyah with them, they're expected to serve. And you are aligning yourself politically by making Aliyah, which means that if you're in a war or you need to protect your country, they are your enemy. And I'm not saying these people specifically are terrible people. I'm saying everyone is politically aligned. And I'll let you respond now. Well, I think that was perfect. I really appreciated what you said and the way you said it. I think it speaks to the bubble factor. I think it it speaks to the fact that uh, people have preconceptions about people who are different. And I moved to Israel with the attitude of being open, accepting invitations, accepting suggestions, because that's one of the amazing things that you get when you live in this part of the world, is you get access to another entire culture that is across the street. Now, the idea that they're all threatening or they all can't find a way to live together is BS. They're not all anything. 98% of Palestinians... Well, to you, you look at it as culture. You're you're looking at it as culture. If you had to put on and serve in the army, or let's say you lost a family member, it becomes political, it becomes personal. For you, this is amusement. The way you're talking about this, just it sounds like you are here on a vacation or some sort of experience, or in Israel they call it chavayah, you're an outsider. You're calling everybody else who's living the life, meaning they are serving the country. They are paying their taxes. I'm sure you're paying your taxes, too. That's their life. If they are committed to a way of life, then that's the bubble they're in. I promise you can continue having this conversation and we will find some bubbles that you're in because of who you are. None of us are fluid. Even the fluid people who call themselves fluid are in their own bubbles. I mean, who are we kidding here? Okay. So what, what does that all mean, Francisca? Does that mean that you can't come here and, and make friends with Arabs? You can't do business with Arabs? No, you absolutely can. You absolutely can. But I would say if you're a Jew or you, you associate yourself with Jewish people or you look visibly Jewish, that you can't fully trust them or they would never marry you. And if they would, it would be an exception to the rule. They would be, they would be letting their families down. Their families don't want them intermarrying into Jewish life either. It's not like it's an upgrade for them. They're disappointing their parents as well. You sound like you're ignoring core issues. It's like people who go into and we're having these episodes come out with an ex-gang member. It's like people who say, oh, we're, we're going to fix the projects. We're going to change up what's going on in the cities. How, how are you going to do that when there are years and generations of trauma and and just that that chain that keeps going on. You can't just throw money into the problem or just get a new politician and then have everything put a sticker or band-aid on it and say it's gonna go away. We're talking about real issues here. You're calling it culture, bubbles, all or nothing. You can't trust. 
there is an underlying belief that yes, if if they believe in jihad, that's part of their core belief systems of any religious Palestinian. If you ask them or if you learn a little bit about what they believe, they will acknowledge that they want us all dead. And if you just are denying that, then no, you don't. No, and I never use the word okay. they to describe millions of people. And that was really why I told you that story, because I don't live in a bubble with a preconception idea of every people who are different than me. Uh, I didn't I didn't grow up. So I don't I, think every person is going to kill you. I don't think that. But be cautious. Yeah, of course. You know, I, I come from Colorado where people walk into grocery stores and gay bars and start shooting people up with AR-15s. Be cautious. It's good in America, too. But here in Israel, you don't have... Well, well guess what? Every Jewish day school and synagogue now has security because of it. It's not like, oh, every person that's going to come in is going to shoot up the place. No. But now every synagogue and every day school has security. And it's it's part of the, the costs. Every day we're paying for that because there might be one person who comes up and shoots the place up in, in the entire country. And because of that, we're all we're all being cautious all the time. Yes, I, I Does that agree. make we, sense? Yes, we should be cautious, but we shouldn't talk about a whole culture as they and paint with a broad brush, especially if you don't have it, if you decide you're not going to have any interactions and your only interaction is as a domestic worker in your house, which was one of your guests who said, you know, every Arab is out is going to stab you in the back and you better watch your back. So maybe maybe if I can put words into their mouth, it would be if they had to or if they had to choose between themselves and you, they would. Who is they? Think about Ukrainians uh, during the Holocaust, you know, or, or Germans. When it came down to it, educated, modern, democratic, again, modern people were killing or telling on other people because the norms changed. Everything just changed. These people went to universities. They were educated. We're not even talking about primitive or 2,000 years ago. The Jewish nation is traumatized. There's so much deep PTSD that you can't tell them to let's be friends. We're treating it like if one berry on this tree might be poisonous, we should be cautious the entire time. Well, being cautious doesn't mean you're not engaged. The only way we're ever going to solve this problem is on a people-to-people level. Okay. So you're talking now about individual behavior. I'm, I'm challenging you. If you would put on a, a, a yarmulke, a kippah, and try to have a conversation, I'm curious how would it be different? You know, next time you go over to their house, but you're, you're wearing a kippah. Tell me how the experience is different for you. When you're visually different and you're in their face Jewish, and not as an outsider, not as this is curious and in an experience and this is interesting. And then come back to me, tell me what it was like for you. Because they treated you like an American, like a curious, out of the bubble. I can hear there's some sensitivity on your part to being visibly Jew. And maybe I'm wrong. I'm not, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying I can hear that you, there's some sensitivity to that. And I think the environment of anti-Semitism in the United States is horrible and has grown and grown and grown. And it's scary. And it's scary times for Jews in the United States. It's scary times for Jews in a lot of parts of the world. And... Things happen in Israel every week where somebody gets injured or attacked um, somewhere in Israel or somewhere in the Palestinian territories. It happens on a regular occurrence. So, yes, you 
should indeed be careful, but that doesn't mean you don't engage. And the bicycle ride I went on was uh, sponsored by the Arva Institute, which is a master's college program as part of Ben-Gurion University. That's David Ben-Gurion, the founder of Israel. And Ben-Gurion University has this master's program at Kibbutz Keturah in the Negev. And this master's program is granting environmental degrees to Jordanians, Palestinians, Americans, Israelis, Jews, and Christians, all living, dining, and studying together at Kibbutz Keturah. That's my model. That's people to people, people who share the value of caring about this land that's holy to everybody and taking good care of it and being good stewards, learning to live with each other and talk to each other. And they have a seminar every week where they have to talk to each other about difficult issues. It's called Peace Building Seminar, Peace Building Leadership. And I, I engaged with the folks um, and I heard their stories and how difficult it is for them. In many cases, Palestinians had never had a conversation with Israeli. An Israeli had never met a Palestinian and had a conversation ever in their entire life. And here they were living and you know sleeping in the same facilities and dining together and studying together every day on a kibbutz, which as you know, is isolated. So you're kind of in, your, in their face every day. Well, they did it and they succeeded. They got their degrees and they moved on in their life professionally. So it's possible. It's not impossible unless you go into it with an attitude of, I have to be afraid of you. And so I can't open myself up to having a relationship because I, I don't trust you because there's some stereotype that somebody told me never trust an Arab. You said you lived there or you spent time there? I spent time there on the bicycle ride. The crew of the bicycle ride is all Arab alumni. So they're all people who have graduated and, and they were Palestinians. They were from Jordan. They were Israelis. They were the crew. And so we got to know them and see their interactions with each other and hear their story of studying together and dealing with, you know, for example, here, I think this was one of the most interesting times. There is a holiday in Israel called Yom Hatzma'ut, which is Independence Day, right? Because it's the Hebrew calendar, it's not celebrated on the American calendar of Independence Day when Israel declared its independence May 14th of 1948. Now, the Palestinians have a commemoration the next day, which is called Nakba Day. And Nakba Day is the day that Palestinians commemorate the crisis of losing their homes, those who did lose their homes because Israelis won the war. So here, these people... Half of them had grown up with Nakba as their story, and half of them had grown up with Yom Hatzma'ut as their story, and they had back-to-back -back holidays together in the same space. And they had to deal with that, and it was really tough. I heard their stories where they, people said, I don't want to talk to the other ones. I don't want to hear their story. It's too painful for me. you know. But they were forced to do it because Aravan has these leadership seminars where they help people facilitate having those kinds of difficult discussions. And they succeed in having those difficult discussions. They don't have a riot at the Aravai Institute. They figure out how to honor the how other one's memories and how to talk about it with each other. And that's what it's going to take to solve this problem here, which has gone on for way, 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 way too long. And way too many people are getting hurt and injured on a, still on a weekly basis. So uh, you mentioned, Francisca, you know, the the parents of IDF soldiers. We had a terrible situation here just a few weeks ago where an 18-year-old IDF uh, soldier, a, a young woman, was standing at a checkpoint uh, in Jerusalem 
And this checkpoint is outside of a refugee camp, just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Now, just imagine that, a refugee camp on the outskirts of Jerusalem that's been there since 1948. Why is there a refugee camp on the outskirts of Jerusalem all of these years? That's the first question. Why would you send a soldier, an 18-year-old soldier, to stand at that checkpoint? And what is, what is she supposed to do? And lo and behold, somebody got out of a car with a gun and shot into a group of soldiers and killed her. Point blank range. Noah Lazar is her name. Not only is that a horrific tragedy for Noah and her family, but that's a tragedy for the Jewish people that we have let this situation go on for all these years and sometimes just throw up our hands and say, well, there's nothing we can do because they hate us. That is not acceptable. We have to be doing everything possible to figure out how to solve this problem. So the 18 year so a parent doesn't have to send their 18-year-old kids to stand at a checkpoint and be a target for somebody who wants to just kill somebody who's wearing an Israeli uniform. We have to be doing everything possible. And that's why I came here, was to engage people and to say, that's, this is why I'm here. I dedicated my life to support of Israel. You can read about it on my Medium page. I worked for APAC in Washington. I studied at Hebrew University. I brought politicians to Israel for many, many years. I work through the American political system in support of Israel. I love Israel. I'm a Zionist. And I'm not afraid to say that to Arabs. And I'm not afraid to hear their story of what happened, you know, three generations ago to their great-grandparents. Talk to me about what needs to happen. Well, you really pressed my button there, Francisca. Well, it worked. <laughs> Thank you. I got you Woo! to say something on par of. <laughs> what was your question? I missed it. So what are the solutions? Well, I, didn't, I can't say that I have solutions, but what I can say is it's so obvious that what we're doing is not working. And if I was a parent and I had a, a kid who was finishing high school in Israel, I would be scared to death that the IDF might take, put that kid at risk. I would be scared to death. So don't I have a responsibility as a parent to make sure that, the, that this country is engaged in solving this problem so I don't have to worry that national service has to be a health risk to my kids? National service is a beautiful thing, and I love the idea that Israelis are committed to national service, whether it's through IDF or Shirut Leomi. Um, and I think it's really tragic that the Haredi community doesn't participate in that. But that's the reality here. And I just think that we have a responsibility as the parents' generation to try to change the world for the better for our kids so they're not at risk at the same way that, that we were you know, in the 1970s when I came to Israel uh, at Hebrew University, and I, I would walk from Hebrew University to the old city through Arab neighborhoods and think nothing of it. There was no security barrier. There was no situation where we felt that we were at risk. The fact that now it's worse than it was in the 1970s is an embarrassment to the baby boomer generation and this class of politicians who can't figure out how to solve this problem. So I think we have to solve it on the ground, you know, direct grassroots engagements, I'm involved with, like, as I mentioned, the RFI Institute, which is working in the field of environmental science. I'm also involved politically with a group of Israeli Jews who feel that Arabs belong in government and they engage Arabs to vote and to organize and to be involved. These are citizens of Israel who vote. There's 2 million Arab citizens of Israel. They should be represented at the highest levels of government because they're a part of this country and they pay taxes. They need the same services that everybody else and they shouldn't be excluded on the basis of somebody calls them a terrorist because they stereotype Arabs as terrorists who will stab you in the back if you turn around. I don't know if it's you turn around or... 
Well, let's get back to talking about successful Aliyah. Yeah, let's talk about successful Aliyah. Great idea. I do always say that I'm an open book. All of my views are in writing and they've been published in various publications. So anybody who wants to read more and go through on my Medium page, I've posted links to all the articles I've had published in American publications and Israeli publications. So I'm, I'm very open and I'm active on social media as well, um, as you mentioned, and I'm on Twitter and I appreciate engaging with people. I do engage with people, but I, what really bothers me is when people paint with, with a broad brush and talk about all Israelis are one thing or all Palestinians are another thing, because that's just not clearly not the case. And you, if you're doing that, it's because you want to live in a bubble and keep the blinders on and you don't, don't, don't tell me the reality outside my bubble. Right. Talk to me about your tips on Aliyah, on successful Aliyah. One of the things that I have picked up from Fish Fish, who's done these webinars, including webinars with people to say, how do you, what, what are the key ingredients to a successful Aliyah? I thought that that webinar was very valuable. I think any planning is valuable, but that you actually have to get here and experience it so all the plans can either say, yeah, I, I, I knew what I was trying to accomplish and it's all going to work or everything I've planned is not working. What do I do now? I need a new plan. I think that the pilot trip is an excellent idea. The pilot trip is a commitment to actually come live in Israel, not as a tourist, not in an Airbnb or a hotel, but to rent someplace that you can be part of a community and just live the day-to-day -day life of the Israelis in that part of the country, in that community. I did that. That's what I kind of consider my Mitzpah Ramon time was a pilot trip in a very, very unusual place. I think that feeling comfortable with public transportation is a good, a good thing as well. I did uh, lease a car about a year and a half ago. I'm very glad to have the independence of being ha having my own car and learning to use the Israeli GPS app called Waze, which is amazing. Except interestingly enough, Waze cuts off at the green line. You have to, you have to pre-program it so that it doesn't do that to you. That's a little trick, not, not a welcome trick. But the other thing is to accept that we come from a different culture and there is not one Israeli culture. There's a whole panoply of Israeli cultures, but regardless, it's different than the North American culture that we've all grown up with. So I think it's smart to say uh, in your mind, you're not, you're not coming here to be Israeli. But you'd like to definitely interact and have meaningful relationships with Israelis. And what that's going to mean is sometimes you're going to feel like a fish out of water because the cultures are different. And that's uncomfortable. And that's okay. Because as we you know, that's where growth occurs is when you're uncomfortable. And it gives you more empathy for other people as well. And, you know, really, you think of people who come here from all parts of the world who never had any Jewish exposure, but have some Jewish relatives in their background and find themselves living in Israel as an asylum seeker, for an example, or, you know, thousands and thousands of Ukrainians and Russians have moved here, especially in the most recent year, um, in a completely different culture where they don't speak the language and maybe have never seen a Hebrew letter in their life. And here they are. So there are you know, many resources available for Olim. You don't really have to look that hard, but you have to look. They're not necessarily going to come to you and say, we're here to help you. What can we do? How can we make your life easier? But the resources are here. Um, Nefesh Benefesh is just one excellent place. But there is Shalifim for Olim in many cities, especially for English speaking, which they call Anglos here. We're all 
categorized as Anglos if we came here as English speakers, which means South Africans, Australians, people from Great Britain, and of course, North Americans, British, of course. So they lump us all into that category of Anglos, like we're all the same, which is kind of humorous. Let's sneak him. And there's communities. And I think that was the other piece that one of your guests brought up, which I thought was a good point, is if you come on a pilot trip, besides living in that you know, Israeli city that you're staying in, take the opportunity to explore different communities and see if you find one that feels more like like you and like you'd like to live your life. For example, Modi'in is really an amazing community and people are moving there from all over the world and all over Israel. It's between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but um, that's yeah. just one that I've just noticed where it's at the melting pot of Israelis and Anglos and people from all over the world and different religious backgrounds as well. And you have the access to Jerusalem and the access to Tel Aviv relatively easily. The other thing I would just mention is that I first came to Israel in the 1970s, and this is a completely different country from the standpoint of in infrastructure and bureaucracy and institutions. So yes, it's not easy, but it's not impossible. The infrastructure is great. You can get around really easily here on public transportation or in a car. You can navigate bureaucracy. It helps if you have somebody who speaks fluent Hebrew to help you make appointments, but you can make appointments through the applications and it's not a bad idea to bring somebody with you who's a fluent Hebrew speaker so you know you're getting the straight stuff. And if it calls for a little bit of pushback to get what you want, what you need, then it's great to have an Israeli who knows how to do that because we don't grow up in America learning how to argue with bureaucrats or people in the bank or people in healthcare or whatever. But um, sometimes you have to do that here. And that is part of the cultural difference that you have to, in a way, embrace and say to yourself, this is part of the fun of living in Israel is figuring out how do I get this done? How do I succeed in, in whatever it is I'm trying to do that in America, you could just go to the drive through and get it done in five minutes. I appreciate your perspective a lot. I think it's important to have this voice. We're all about voices and giving everyone a voice on this podcast. So I'm happy you were able to express yourself. I hope you're happy as well or pleased. Yeah, I'm pleased. Uh, you, you got my uh, energy flowing and um, I appreciate that. I hope I wasn't too harsh in what I said. Well, we'll find out. We're going to post this and find out. Any closing remarks before we wrap up? First of all, I, I just want to make sure that people know what high regard that I hold you in, Francisca. I really do. And I love what you do. And I love the way you do. And all Thank the you. hats that you wear, and you wear them very well. And I know that's not easy. And I really appreciate you know the opportunity to, to speak to your audience, which is going to be somewhat different background than, than, my, than myself. Obviously, it's a topic I'm quite passionate about because I changed my entire life in my 60s and gave up what was a comfortable life to come to live in Israel, which now I have to find a new comfortable life here, and it takes real effort. Um, so I, I really appreciate having the opportunity to be a voice to your listeners on that, and they're welcome to contact me. I'm in contact with a guy right now who said, I heard you're living in Israel, and I'm coming for a visit, and I'm helping him with some advice. So I'm always happy to do that and be available to your listeners. I'm so glad we had this conversation. And I'm excited for the audience to hear from passionate Jewish people who don't look or sound or think like them. So thank you, Ken, for coming on. Thank you for your kind and generous words. I hope you continue to participate in this conversation. 
Beautiful. Join the WhatsApp group so we can continue the discussion of this episode as well as other episodes. Also, this is a Jewish Coffeehouse Network podcast, which means there are other incredible podcasts on the network. So go check them out as well. I link Jewish Coffeehouse in the show notes. Reminder, if you haven't checked out 24-6, now is the time to go get the app or get the device so you can finally have a family-friendly, kosher, filtered way to get access to all the Jewish entertainment out there. And by all, I can finally say women are included too. If you are a content creator, make sure to get your content on there if it's not on there yet. If you'd like a connection, please reach out to me and I'll happily introduce you to the right contact. Also, if you would like to be a sponsor of the show, please reach out. I would love to get your message out there and let everyone know about your brand and what you do. My information is in the show notes. And of course, if you would like to share your story on this podcast, please reach out. Your stories are incredible and they are worth sharing, worth listening to, and you deserve a voice. Thanks for listening to The Francisca Show, and we'll see you next time to talk about the blunt feedback from a shot. See you next time. Have a great week.